Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Hey, Cliff. Hey, Bobo. How you doing today? Good, man. Good. How's it going with you? It's going all right. It's been an adventurous week, to say the least. Yeah. Yep. I had four nights out, and it was totally dead in coyotes and stuff like that. I mean, it's beautiful and all that. But anyways, let's get right to the chase today. Yeah. We'll have to talk about Bigfoot stuff later. We have something a little bit more pressing on the desk today. Yep. We got a guy I first came aware of a couple of years ago, or whenever, maybe it was a year ago, when he was on Joe Rogan. Um, and then he, he actually was on Animal Planet after we left. Forrest Galante, and he's got Extinct or Alive, which basically deals with cryptids. Because cryptozoology doesn't mean undiscovered. It could be something that was known to exist, but hasn't been seen, thought to be extinct for a long time, then it's rediscovered. So that could be a crypto species, too. Yeah, they're kind of called a Lazarus species, I think, you know, after the biblical story. Yeah. So anyways, without further ado, this is uh, Forrest Galante. Yeah. Hey, gentlemen. How are you? Good. Thanks, Forrest. Absolutely great. Thrilled to have you on, by the way. Like, I, I love talking to adventurers and people are doing more or less the same thing that Bobo and I are trying to do, but a little bit different because you're actually succeeding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so far it's been good. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a wildlife biologist by trade and a, and a tracker and a rare species expert. And um, I uh, I do. I, I, I uh, One of the things I target primarily is Lazarus taxon, which are animals that have uh, th- theoretically been declared extinct wrongfully. And so, you know, I, I like to try and challenge that notion and uh, have done so, you know, many times, but eight times successfully now. So yeah, it's been, it's been great. What were your biggest ones that a leopard and what else? Uh, I'd say the biggest one ever. So we have eight total rediscoveries now, which is, it's amazing. You know, it's seven more than any single uh, organization or person has ever done before in history. So we're really proud of it, especially when we came from a, a stance of when we started being like, I don't know if we'll ever find anything, you know, extinct doesn't mean hiding in a bush. It doesn't mean around the next corner. Extinct means eradicated, gone forever. So we were, uh, we certainly weren't as expectant to be as successful as we were. But um, uh, to answer your question, my biggest discovery, I think, was actually the Fernandina tortoise. Now, tortoises in the Galapagos, you know, they're the icon of conservation. Lonesome George was the poster child of conservation, and he died in 2014, 2012, something like that. And since then, there really hasn't been a poster child for conservation. Well, in, you know, 2018, uh, I discovered the Fernandina Island tortoise, an animal only ever seen, only ever reported once in history, 114 years prior by the California Academy of Sciences, never seen since, never recorded, never documented. And we found that creature and, and Fern, as we affectionately named her, 
is the rarest animal on earth, you know, arguably, no offense, rarer than Bigfoot, because she is the only one. There is only one of them as far as we know, and it's the one that we found. So that was, that was really big for me and, and big for the field of conservation in general. Now, is it uh, th- th- this one was hiding in plain sight? Is it that does it look the same as the other species uh, on the island or like was it just differentiated by its DNA or how was that? Determined? No, no, not at all. That, you know, that uh, I almost, I don't really uh, dive into that arena, you know, of speciation by genetics because I'm not a geneticist. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a field biologist. Um, no, the island of Ferdinandina is the second most active volcano in the world. It's a standalone island that has no other species of tortoise. So for those that don't know, every single island in the Galapagos has its own species of tortoise. Some have a couple. But Fernandina, the newest island in the Galapagos, due to its age, was not known to have any tortoises except for this one that was discovered 114 years prior by the California Academy of Sciences. A lot of people, you know, and to tie it into what you guys do, a lot of people said, it's not real, it's a hoax. There was never a Fernandina tortoise to begin with even though there was a, you know, there was a specimen sitting in the California Academy of Sciences. We never hear that for us. No, I'm sure it never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I knew about that specimen. I've seen that specimen. I, I've worked with a couple people that work in the, in the turtle and tortoise industry as biologists and done a, about two and a half years of research and then launched the expedition to Fernandina, which in itself was a massive ordeal and undertaking just to get the permits and paperwork. And, um, yeah, she she wasn't hiding in plain sight. She was she was hiding in a deep bush. Um, but the only species that it could be, you know, there's no other species on the island. So as soon as we found her, we knew exactly what we were looking at. Now, did you take her back, or did you just leave her on the island, take a few samples from her, or anything? Or as I was saying earlier, the Fernandina uh, Fernandina Island is the second most active volcano in the world. So it's a very volatile environment. Fern was stuck in a small pocket of vegetation. That was surrounded by impenetrable lava flow. I mean, it took us something like seven, eight hours in like 120 degree heat just to get to where she was um, crossing this lava flow. No, no, no quadruped, no four legged animal on Earth could could cover this these lava flows. I mean, it's just impossible. It's like walking on shards of glass. Um, So when we got there and found her, she was super malnourished, super dehydrated, um, and she was the only one. So it was a little bit of like a moral and ethical dilemma because we're like, we should leave her. It's the right thing to do. But at the same time, leaving her would almost certainly result in losing her again, you know, not knowing where the species was. She could have very easily died. So we grabbed her and we took her to the Fausto Lorena breeding facility on Santa, Santa Cruz Island, the main island in the Galapagos, the same exact facility that housed Lonesome George, put her there and she didn't leave her water bowl for seven days. She was so dehydrated that when she saw water, she just like, you know, I don't, I don't mean to anthropomorphize these creatures, but she lit up and she like darted in tortoise speed over to the water dish and didn't leave it for seven days. So we absolutely made the right decision. It sparked multiple return trips of which none have so far yielded another tortoise, but you know, we've released millions of dollars of funding and all kinds of great stuff due to the discovery. Wow. So the world population, the world's known population of these tortoises right now is one. Is one, the girl that we found, Fern. My goodness. Yeah. I'm more excited about the stuff that you're doing in Australia because uh, like us, Cliff and I are both into the thylacine and we were down there. We went looking for the Yowie and I was real excited about your thylacine study. Well, I don't know if it's yours, but I think you were talking about it. The university down there in Australia that has 2,500 game counts are putting out a real strategic pattern, not just randomly placed, but like geometrically lined up to cover everything multiple times. And I hope that thing gets a Yowie on it. I'm not familiar with Yowie. What, what's the what's a Yowie? 
Australian Bigfoot. Oh, that would make sense. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so I, I can't speak much on that. I, I know very little about uh, Bigfoot um, specifically, but yes. Yeah, so the the university in Cairns, Australia, um, they have this large systematic approach to monitoring wildlife in far north Queensland, and like you said, they have this massive grid pattern of these trail cameras covering huge spaces, spaces, and they are checkerboarded in the sense of diverse habitats and moving them from one one zone to another. So, you know, so to speak, anything that moves in that region will be captured on these cameras. And one of the things that Queenstown University and, and researchers and myself are hoping is that it could be, you know, there's the potential for it to be a thylacine. It's in an extremely remote part of Australia where we know these animals occurred less than 4,000 years ago. So if, if the dingoes haven't taken over, they could still be there. I was going to say, is that their biggest enemy, the dingo? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a variety of things. But long story short, the thylacine used to range from Papua New Guinea all the way to Tasmania. Um, when people first settled Australia, they brought with them canids, dingoes. So a lot of people think dingoes are from Australia. They're not. Dingoes came to Australia 4,000 years ago with the first humans. Um, those dogs outcompeted them. Now, dingoes are in Papua New Guinea, they are in Australia, but they are not in Tasmania. So the last stronghold for the thylacine was Tasmania, um, you know, which we successfully eradicated them from by put, plus, placing a bounty on their head. But in Australia, in the mainland where we brought dingoes 4,000 years ago, they were outcompeted by the dingoes. Now, the reason that I think Australia is so fascinating, one, there's lots of sightings and, and other things like that. But two, is dingoes are, they're a plains animal. They don't like certain habitat. Um, not to say that they won't traverse through it, and they're, they're, they're a far better competitor than a thylacine, but they could easily um, avoid niche habitats within far north Queensland, Queensland that thylacine would prefer to occupy. So in spaces where thylacine, in habitats where thylacine and dingo would overlap, dingo will win every time. But in certain spaces where dingo would choose not to occupy based on the ecology of the environment, thylacine could continue to, to thrive. Yeah, it's a marsupial. Do we, are, were they pack animals? I don't even know. Uh, no, as far as we know about their social dynamic, they were not a pack animal. They are, they're a marsupial carnivore, the largest marsupial carnivore that ever existed. Uh, they had small social structures, so you know, a few of them at a time, but not, certainly not a pack. That would be the wrong terminology. Now, if you're involved in a, in, a, in a study of the thylacine and trying to, quote unquote, rediscover them, I guess, um, you've certainly seen your fair share of photographs or purported photographs or small videos of these things out in the wild, which I, I, I'm assuming probably sparks some interest into this project. Like, hey, these might be real. I'm curious because I'm faced with this quite a bit. Um, what do you do uh, as, a, as a legitimate scientist instead of like a citizen scientist like myself? Uh, what do you do to try to determine the authenticity of uh, photographs or videos of these rare, possibly extinct, or not even supposedly real species? Like, what do you need to do to kind of convince yourself like this is a maybe? It's a good question. You know, we have a very systematic approach to wildlife that we take, which is, you know, I have these spreadsheets that you, they're spreadsheets on spreadsheets. They're absolutely awful, where um, we, you know, plug in every single sighting and every single report and put in coordinates or, or approximate locations. And then we, we map it all, you know, so in the case of the thylacine, right? Okay, this report popped up here, and this report popped up here, and this report popped up here. And then when you look at when you put all those into a map, you're like, Oh, it turns out those are only, you know, I'm making all this up, but three miles apart from each other, that could be the same animal. So you start to get these sighting clusters, right? And that's when you can launch a full scale investigation. Now, 
the diff- the difficulty that comes uh, to me and my team is the fact that which of those sightings are you going to log? And you have to determine credibility based on those sightings. Word of mouth, you know, we very rarely consider. Um, film and photograph, you know, there was a famous photograph of a super mangy fox running around Victoria, or video, pardon me, of the super mangy fox running around Victoria, Southern Australia, that everybody was calling a thylacine. And, you know, every, every, yahoo in the world would go on youtube and say that's definitely a thylacine where anybody with even a remote amount of wildlife experience or biological knowledge can look at and look at it and go that's a mangy fox why are we even pretending so you know fortunately with my background in the wildlife sciences and i actually worked with foxes for a couple years so with my background in that you know some of that stuff that people send me relentlessly doesn't go further than, you know, even looking at the title of the link because I'm able to know what it is. And when it comes to something like thylacine, I would wager to say I've seen every single video and photo of quote unquote thylacine caught on tape there is. And, you know, none of them are credible. Hmm, None of them. Okay. I've seen, I thought I've seen a couple that looked pretty good, but again, I'm not really into it. I'm not really studying it or anything. There's an interesting one. Um, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's it's like this this color image of this animal that's like kind of standing up on a rock with a green background where you can just see a little bit of the coloration. And, and it's, you know, like to me, that photo is interesting. You know, I'm not I, I would never. And this just goes against my protocol as a scientist. I would never look at it and go, that's a thylacine. You know, that's just not how I operate. But that photo is very compelling. You know, I can't look at it and go, that's a fox. So it's in that gray area, right? Where it's like between the two, where it's not, it's not definitive. Um, but it's certainly, you can't definitively call it something else. So that would be considered, you know, that would be something that I would consider logging into our database to, to, to be a sighting. Um, and so that's, yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of imagery out there. There's nothing that's definitive. Yeah, there's a lot of maybes, and that's that's where you know our focus tends to live in the maybe realm. Uh, all these photographs and whatever else is, and uh, so um, as far as footprint evidence of thylacine and whatnot, what do you, what differentiation do you see between like regular dogs, for example, and what a thylacine footprint was would look like? Yeah, well, in layman's terms, a thylacine has a kangaroo foot. So if you've ever considered a kangaroo foot, they've got these long, skinny feet that go along the ground versus a dog, which has, you know, a little paw. Now, the thylacine is not exactly like a kangaroo. Otherwise, it would be indistinguishable. But imagine the pad of a dog's foot with the back end of, of um, a kangaroo's. And so, you know, when I've tracked thylacine through Tasmania and, and in Australia, that's what I've been looking for. And I'll be 100% transparent in telling you I've never seen a track that, that matches that description. Like we, we know based on the morphology of the animal and the museum specimens exactly what a print would look like. But keep in mind, some of the places I track, you know, it's deciduous forest. So there's no, there's no dust or, or mud or anything that leaves a track. It's just leaf litter that you'd never see a track in. So, um, you know, certain animals, like I've tracked lions in Africa and the list goes on and on. It's very easy to track them based on the habitat. Thylacine typically does not occupy a habitat that is conducive to tracking, unfortunately. Didn't you get attacked by a lion? I have. Yeah. When I, it's, it's a very over embellished way of putting it, but, um, yeah, the, the truth is, uh, so I grew up in Zimbabwe and our neighbors had a game farm. And when I was a little kid, I used to go over there and play with the lion cubs and the rescues and stuff like that. And, um, 
I, uh, one time I was playing with some adolescent lions and I turned my back to leave the cage and the lion decided he wasn't done playing as I flopped the pillowcase full of feathers over my shoulder and, uh, shredded up my back a little bit. (laughs) Classic. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. In your time in Africa, did you hear rumors or stories or folklore or anything about about some sort of Sasquatch-like animal out there, like some sort of upright bipedal ape animal living in Africa? I've heard it all, guys. Um, And what I mean by that is uh, Africa is the dark continent. And I I lived in Zimbabwe, which is, you know, it's Shauna and Tonga are the cultures primarily there. And there, there, there is not... I won't say there is no Western religion because that's certainly not true, but the accepted common belief system is one of lore and witch doctors and tri- tribal culture, you know, sometimes mixed in with some Christianity, sometimes not. And I've, I've heard it all, you know, in, in where I grew up in Zimbabwe, things that are misunderstood are articulated as spirituality. And there's a lot of that. I've heard of upright bipedal things. I've heard of witch doctors. I mean, in one of my episodes when we're in Zanzibar, where we found our first major discovery in extinct leopard species, the witch doctor talks of how uh, shapeshifters would use le- leopards to do their evil bidding. Now, this isn't something that, you know, is like a joke or something that is shared lightly. This is factual as far as the people there are concerned. And so, yes, this is a very long answer. But the short answer is, yes, I'm very familiar with... Um, bipedal large primate creatures all the way from the Congo to where I lived in Zimbabwe being reported that do not match any descriptions of any known biological creatures. Did you hear any of that from trusted like other trackers or like an older experienced guy that you looked up to or someone you trusted did they ever tell you an encounter they possibly had or? What 100%. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there are people, there are gentlemen that I grew up with uh, in Zimbabwe, trackers that work. So my family ran a safari business, right? So they, we spent all our time in the bush, like all of it. If I wasn't in school, I was in the bush. And um, there are trackers that I grew up with, trackers that make me look like an absolute clown. I mean, guys that'll look at the dust and go, you know, there was a fight here, a large male lion charged a small impala, the impala took off to the right, the, lion, the lioness circled around the left, you know, all of this just by reading the dust. And uh, those types of trackers who, like I said, I mean, I I literally, I I can't hold a candle to these types of people and I'm a pretty good tracker. Um, and I learned from them, but they're, that's all they do is track. They, they have reported seeing tracks of things like that. They've reported seeing things like that. And, and, you know, look, I'll be honest with you guys. I'm a biologist. I believe in science and fact, and, you know, I, I also trust the people. Isaac is one of them, the name that comes to my head implicitly who have told me stories of encounters with these animals. And, and oftentimes they're affiliated with witch doctors and shamans. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of folklore and lore going on about it. Even here in the United States, there's this whole movement of people who don't seem to understand sat, like the possible biologic, biological reality of Sasquatches, and they uh, attribute all sorts of other things to them. 
um, turning invisible or, you know, uh, the mind speak or, you know, talking inside their heads, all sorts of stuff that just would, you know, make your head turn around right. from a scientific perspective. And it's, it's one of the interesting things about it. I was going to ask you about, um, well, number one, are you familiar with Gareth Patterson by any chance? Um, uh, the author? The author, correct. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with the name. I can't think of any of his books off the top of my head. Yeah, well, he he was uh, the assistant to the like born free lion guy back in the seventies. Oh, but now, gotcha. now he actually is along your line. He actually uh, has rediscovered a um, a population of South African elephants. Oh, that, phenomenal! Um, yeah, they, they thought that the the tr- the the troop had been that troop was that what elephants traveling herd. Um, the herd. Uh, they thought the herd was down to one big matriarch, and it turns out now there's a few dozen of these things, and he he's the guy that figured it out. Very cool, South Africa. Um, along the way, he's, I think he has now seen the, the local flavor of Sasquatch they call the Otang it was with his own eyes, probably, I think, what do you say, six times or something over the last eight, four times over the last eight years. Anyway, uh, interesting uh, researcher kind of doing the same sort of thing that you're doing um, over there in Africa, South Africa. But I want to ask you, um, what role do the indigenous people and local folklore and mythology and stories, what role does that play in the discovery or rediscovery of species? Uh, a huge one. Um, lore, local culture, and look, the best scientists in the world, the best, the people who understand the environment the most are not people like myself who have a fancy degree or an education or sit in an office. They're the people that spend the time in the field, boots on the ground, whether they're an official scientist or someone collecting water from a river. Um, those people, the people who live there, the trackers like Isaac I mentioned, they're the ones that understand the environment. I, and this is an unpopular opinion upon my colleagues, but it's one that I'll gladly express. We know nothing compared to them. They're the ones that understand every leaf, every blade of grass, you know, where it comes from, where it's going, etc. They might not understand large scale population dynamics and global warming, but they understand the minutiae of it because they're involved in it every day. When I, like I was mentioning, my first discovery was that of a Zanzibar leopard, right? Zanzibar is an island nation that is uh, shrouded in lore and culture. And the witch doctors used to use their leopard, leopards there to do their evil bidding. And uh, many of the witch doctors outright told us that they used to have the abilities to transform themselves from uh, from shaman into leopard and back to do evil bidding at night. And we discovered a leopard there. Um, I'm not saying that that was a shaman who that night, you know, went werewolf and turned into a leopard. But what I am saying is without connecting with those witch doctors and speaking to them and understanding their beliefs with regards to the animal's ongoing existence, where to look, where they might be, what they'd killed, etc., we probably would have had no hope in hell of ever finding one. And, and the same goes on and on. When we were in the Amazon, people talked about the, uh, the Cayman Amarillo Lago, uh, Trumpa Largo. So like the Cayman, the yellow Cayman with the big nose, I probably just butchered the, the Spanish way of saying it. But uh, they, they kept talking about the Cayman with the large, the yellow Cayman with the large nose. And that was it wasn't seen as mythology to them, but it was extremely rare and, and kind of unknown as to where it was or what it was. And it was crystal clear to Western science that that was a species that hadn't been seen in 40 years. So, you know, it, it's without communicating with the locals and taking their words at least as, as credible with regards to ongoing existence, you've got nothing. Like, otherwise, you're just parachuting in, you know, you're taking a shot in the dark and leaving. So I, I would never dare to venture on one of these excursions or expeditions to try and locate these animals without the help of the locals that engage with them on a daily basis. 
And how do you approach the, um, the cultures that you're learning from um, with the scientific Western ideas in mind that you, that you approach them with? Like, how do, you, how do you approach them and still maintain a level of respect instead of just – the tendency would be like for the conqueror to write that off as mythology, right? Um, like, but what's the balance there as a scientist when you approach this? How do you deal with that? You know, it's like there's this whole new thing in my field that it sucks because I I, I hate the terminology of like um, a parachuting science and colonial science and all these weird words that I don't necessarily agree with with regards to when they're applied. But you have to use the local resources and the help and you have to take you have to take in all of the information and anybody that just discredits something because another culture believes in it, even if it's of the supernatural is is foolish because your understanding of supernatural and their understanding of supernatural are two very different things right for some people in the world um you know the sky this the sky goes dark because uh i i don't even know i'm making this up because i'm so dry as a scientist but my point is just you know for some people the wind blows because because something in the sky made it and for some people it's due to the coriolis effect right it's just a different understanding of different things it doesn't mean the wind doesn't blow if you get my point, you know, my point, my point is that you have to, you, you sit on the ground, you can hear the stories, you can pick and choose what pieces of information are useful to an investigation. It doesn't mean you have to believe them when they tell you that a spirit blew the wind, you know, but you can believe them that the wind is blowing because you know that. So it, it's, it's picking and choosing and disseminating which information is actually relevant to an expedition or a search over criticizing or discrediting because one piece of the story doesn't match our scientific understanding. Well said. Yeah, gotcha. So, um, in, in your, uh, in your travels throughout the world or, or do you, do you have any goals of working with primates, some sort of read, um, undiscovered primate species? Cause you know, cause we're, we're, Bobo and I are both Bigfoot folks. Um, and we're interested in all sorts of unknown primates throughout the world. And there seems to be just an endless supply of them. So are there any of those on your radar at the moment? Well, I mean, I've discovered a lost primate. So that was, that was nice. Um, Tell us about it, please. Tell us about it. Yeah. Yeah. I I found a a primate called the Miller's grizzled langur that hadn't been seen in Borneo in 20 ish years. No, no, no. I'm sorry. That's not true. Some researchers photographed it, uh, eight years prior, but hadn't seen it since. So, you know, that, that was like, that wasn't an extinct animal, but it was certainly a lost one. And that was a huge moment, you know, finding this creature in this tiny pocket of Borneo, but uh, on a bigger scale with regards to do I have any interest in primates? I have huge interest in primates. Um, there's a, there's a, a relatively poorly known region in the, in the Congo, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, that is held by gorillas, as in GU gorillas, like warfare gorillas, um, that potentially has twice the known population of Western lowland gorilla, the species. But it's just very, very dangerous to go and engage with this piece of bush. But, you know, if... if something that I've been working on for a couple of years, and this is the first time I've announced it publicly, but something I've been working on for a couple of years, much like my, my Columbia expedition where we snuck in under the FARC rebels noses. Um, you know, I would like to go in under the radar into that habitat and walk through that 150 kilometer stretch of bush and see if we can locate that troop of gorillas, because it would effectively double our known, uh, our known population of lowland gorillas, which wouldn't remove them from the endangered species list or anything, but it would certainly increase the gene pool, maybe lead to more protections, maybe open up that piece of habitat for protection, et cetera. So yeah. And that's, you know, that's as, 
as big footy as they get, right? We're talking about silverback gorillas, like big lowland, um, massive primates that, that the whole world doesn't know whether or not like 50,000 of these animals exists. So I'm, I'm really not, um, very well versed in the cryptid space, to be honest with you, gentlemen, like I've never searched for Bigfoot or, or Nessie or any of those kind of things. I, I focus very much so on wildlife, you know, like I, I know wildlife in and out and, and I study wildlife. Like you should see what my office looks like. It's uh, nothing but aquariums and tanks and mounts. Um, and yeah, so I, I really just know about animals. Like that's kind of my thing. I, I don't know much about the cryptid space at all. So forgive me when I'm not familiar with these terms. Oh, it's okay. No, we love it. We love it because you're, you know, you're doing like legit stuff and we're in the public eyes. We're not, um, we think we are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're real. Sasquatches are actually out there. Don't get me wrong, but you know, the public in general thinks that we're pseudoscientists and just cause we don't have a credential. Forrest would probably be interested in the orang pendek. Yeah, so you've probably heard of the Orang Pendek. That's a rather... I have because um, I, I'm friends with Joe Rogan, the talk show host or the podcast host, and he's he's quite obsessed with them. So yeah, I've, I've heard the first time I ever heard about them was was talking to Joe. And then I, I spending as much time in Indonesia as I have, which is becoming a ridiculous amount at this point, because there's so so much incredible speciation over there. Um, I've, I've heard that name many times now. Cliff has the biggest footprint collection of the cast of those of anybody. I funded a project with the local people over there. Once uh, Finding Bigfoot, the show that Bobo and I were on, we went to um, Sumatra. And when we left, I kind of um, funded a project for a couple of years with the locals saying, hey, if you hear about a sighting, why don't you go see if you can go cast a couple footprints? And we got, we got some. Um, it, was, it was an interesting project. And, you know, Dr. Meldrum from Midosi University has possession of some of the casts. And- now, my understanding of Orang Pendek is it's a relatively small humanoid creature right like two or three feet or maybe what three or four foot tall something like that three to five feet tall is three the to five feet description tall. yeah yeah and it's it's it, it, i do think they're real and i think that they're probably some sort of terrestrial or semi-terrestrial orangutan at the end of the day the part of the world is perfect because obviously there's sumatran orangutans there's uh, of course borneos right there and uh yeah so i think that they're probably just semi-terrestrial orangutans they're, i don't think they're hominins like a lot of other people do. Um, so like the whole idea of a relic Homo floresiensis or something from down of Flores or the new one from the Philippines, uh, Homo luzonensis. I don't think that the rank index are those because the foot structure is different based on the footprint cast evidence. I'll tell, I'll tell you this, not to interject my opinion to something I know very oh, little please about, do. but please do. Um, you know, I, I've traveled 70 something countries now I've worked with wildlife in. I mean, it's, it's a, it's getting ridiculous to the point that my family hates me, but um, I, there's two places in the world that, you know, I would consider to be like the dark continent, right? Like dark, like Africa in the sense of, I very much so believe in, in a sense, and I can go elaborate, magic is still real in Africa and Indonesia is another place that I feel like that. There's a lot still to be understood and explored and discovered there. Um, and so, you know, having gone to Sumatra many times and Borneo as well in that whole region, it wouldn't surprise me to find out it's not that it wouldn't surprise me. It's a known thing that there are primate species that we don't know about yet. Now, that said, I, I would reverse the question to you guys and I'd ask you, like, why don't we know about these primate species? What makes them so elusive? You know, if if there's a bipedal orangutan running around Indonesia, why have we never seen one or killed one? You know, like, I, I, I'm sure it's a kind of question you guys get all the time. And forgive me for asking it again. But that, that's kind of what always crosses my mind is like, why don't we know about it? I think it's a couple fold. I think probably rarity of the species says a lot about it. And also, you know, um, the, the area that they live in, you know, is the, uh, what is it? Uh, um, yeah, Karinchi. 
cringy off yeah. a park. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, impenetrable. It, it's literally impenetrable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just absolutely ridiculous, and that's that's one of their main you know bastions, shall we say? Um, and also, I mean, I, I've thought about this for a while as well. Indonesia, you're not this is not exactly it's not, not like the U.S. Man, it's not like a gun country, you know. Um, it didn't seem like that to me. I, I seems that if you're not in the military, you probably don't have a firearm. And and at the end of the day, that's kind of what it takes to prove a new species, which is something that I might ask you about. Um, how do you deal with the need of collecting a holotype? Um, for a totally new and novel species? It's very difficult, uh, especially because I am not a hunter and I don't want to kill any of these. We do fur traps. Uh, you know, I, we dart stuff and take blood. Um, sometimes camera imagery is enough. You know, in the case of uh, the caiman and, and the tortoise, we literally had those animals in our hands. So it's just, it's very, very tricky. You know, when I was in uh, Africa in 2018, we were looking for remnant genetics of the Cape lion. And in order to do that, I had to get 25 feet away from one with effectively a paintball gun that shoots a tranquilizer dart and put it to sleep and pull some blood from it, you know, which we caught the animal. And unfortunately, I've worked in those environments a lot. So it, nothing bad, nothing went wrong. But, um, you know, tracking the largest male lion that you can find in southern Africa to put it to sleep, to pull some blood for it, to check the blood for remnant genetics is uh, it's very challenging, you know, and those things, uh, those things come up all the time. And it's one of the reasons. Uh, and I'll be honest, this field didn't really exist before I started focusing on it. You know, not to, this isn't a humble brag, but like there were so many reasons why this field was too difficult to, to approach that most scientists would never even dare take it on. And now we're starting to figure out ways with which to do it, like fur traps and darting and et cetera, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, um, it's very challenging is a short answer. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So for people like Bobo and I, our audience in general, who like think or know that Sasquatches are in fact real animals, what can you recommend for the layman scientist, the citizen scientist that wants to make some sort of progress towards the eventual, you know, academic uh, recognition of the species? What can we do as a, uh, as a community or a group or as individuals? Like, what would you recommend for us? With regards to finding a discovery or with regards to just being more credible in the sense of you know, for furthering, furthering the subject, I, I'm just going to leave it open like that because I'm not a gun guy. I'm not going to kill a Sasquatch and bring it in. That's not just not me. Right. So what can people like me or people who are gun guys actually do? Cliff, I think um, the answer there is really, really quite simple. Like if, if you want to be taken seriously in the scientific community, you have to let me let me back up one second. And this is something that I debate and argue with people. By the way, when I first, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen um, The Lost City of Z. It's a movie. It's a wonderful book. Percy, it's a, it's a real story, too. Uh, Percy Fitzpatrick gets up in front of this, like, room of guys in stuffy smoking jackets, and he's like, I'm going to find the Lost City. And they're like, you're crazy. You're a lunatic. You know, when I first got up in front of a bunch of colleagues and said, I'm going to find an extinct animal, I, I, I received the same reaction, right? You're crazy. You're a lunatic. Like, you're insane. You know, now, fast forward 10, 15 years, whatever it's been since we started down this journey. And, uh, you know, all those same people are coming back to me and going, it's unbelievable. You're being nominated for prizes. You know, people, we want you to speak at our symposiums, blah, blah, blah. So the only way that I got from the point of being called a lunatic to the point of being praised for my discoveries is by using scientific methodology to prove things, right? And so that's what I would advise to, to the layman, to the citizen scientist, 
you know, go and gather all the data, gather all the research, organize it, uh, write, write something credible. You know, if you, if you become, and I'm sure you guys are this way already. So, uh, forgive me if I'm, if I'm saying anything that's just too obvious, but if you are obsessive over something the way I am over extinct creatures and you then apply scientific methodology to it and lay it all out and, you know, pinpoint everything, you know, you kind of get the, the visual of the guy, the crazy guy with all the pictures on the wall and all the pins and the strings leading to one thing. That's what you have to do in science, right? It's like, take all these little pieces of evidence, try and connect them to one place, then go out and prove it. And in my opinion, with regards to proving it is, do fur traps, uh, put out camera traps, trail cameras are your best friend in the world. You know, you get a clear, clear image on a trail camera of a Bigfoot and that's that, like there's nothing anybody can do about it. Um, you know, so get fur traps, get trail cameras, uh, just, just narrow it in. There's a couple, there's a couple of texts. I mean, there's a couple of books written by academics, PhDs. Um, one's Dr. Jeff Meldrum. He's a anthropologist. And then there was, uh, Dr. John Bindernagel was a wildlife biologist and they wrote, uh, books for guys like you, but it seems like almost no one, none, none of the academically qualified people they wrote it for have even read them. Oh, interesting. Why? I wonder why that is. Do you think because there's not enough people interested? Like, why? Why is that? I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm not familiar with them, and I'm in the space. It's an unlikely, unlikely subject, uh, an unlikely uh, spec. Um, well, species really in an unlikely place, North America. We kind of think that we've got this whole thing, you know, all shuttered down. Like we know what's up here. You're not going to surprise us with anything bigger than a shrew, right? Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, Dr. Grover Krantz often said that like anthropologists would be deeply embarrassed if Sasquatches were proven to be real because how could they o- have overlooked such a big thing right in their own backyard, et cetera. But now with this idea, and like Dr. Meldrum's really pushing this forward more than anybody, this idea of relict hominoids in general, you know, like the, you know, with the various hominin species not dying off until very recently and with homo sapiens overlapping in the timeline with them with like i think seven or maybe eight that we know of different hominins um the the idea that like the last uh, homo standing now may not just be us we may be not alone on this planet especially in these far-flung places of the planet rural china or northern uh, russia and that place those the, those sort of places but there might even be some in our own backyard and uh, i think it yeah, it's a really interesting question, um, even to the point where Scientific American put it on the front page of their, uh, their, one of their uh, magazines a few years back. So Fascinating. I mean, there is more and more evidence to show that, you know, sort of Homo erectus um, and, and caveman, if you will, and I, forgive me, I don't know all the genus and not my, my, not my field, but, um, you know, basically the primitive man was here later and later than we realized. That seems to be from my very superficial understanding of, and correct me if I'm wrong, year after year, we're like, oh, it turns out they were here, you know, first first we thought they were here a million years ago. Now we think they're here 100,000 years ago. Now we think they were here 30,000 years ago. Like it seems to just keep, the timeline seems to, keeps, seems to keep uh, moving up, which I always do find quite interesting. And more and more species. Like since you're a fan of Indonesia, you know, Homo floresiensis, obviously the hobbit species and the lat, the, the one that was published in May of 2019, Homo luzonensis from the Philippines. Um, and just uh, two weeks ago, Lee Berger from in South Africa commented, you know, he's the guy that's, that's excavating the rising star cave where uh, Homo nalidi was discovered. Um, and that one trove of hominin bones actually more than doubled the entirety of the hominin data set. 
just that that one cave more than doubled it from what I understand. Um, mixed in with the Homo naledi, which is a whole new species that Lee Berger discovered in South Africa in this cave, are apparently other specimens from an entirely different species they're now trying to identify. There might be another Homo, homo uh, hominin discovery on the horizon in the near future. So and I think that's, you know, that's that's my world, not not humanoid species, but wildlife species in that kind of realm. And um, it, I think that's fascinating. I think people do want to know about that. I think they want to read about that. You know, you're asking what citizen scientists can do. You know, I don't think you should all put on your Indiana Jones boots and get out there and start digging around caves. But I think the furthering of that, inf- the, the furthering of the spread of that information and the understanding of that information will lead to the ability for more citizen scientists in, uh, to be involved. And, and a perfect example that I can give is I did an expedition looking for uh, the ivory-billed woodpecker, which was a large woodpecker species that occurred in the southeast and all the way into Cuba. Since then, I have probably received no less than 7,000 emails with reported sightings, videos, pictures, etc. Now, most of them are not credible, but regardless... It's citizen scientists that are bringing this up, bringing it to me to say, hey, I think I saw an ivory-billed woodpecker, right? Now, none of them have proven it yet, but all it takes is one, right? So instead of me being one set of eyes out there looking for this woodpecker for three and a half weeks, like we typically do on an expedition, now I have, I'm making these numbers up, but 10,000 people in the region out looking for this woodpecker with cameras, and all it takes is one person to get lucky once if that animal is still there. And a citizen scientist has made a much larger impact than than, you know, I would ever be capable of doing in a three week expedition. So uh, as far as taking a holotype goes, I, I, some, I, I have a little bit of a moral quandary, and I, I think you probably do too, based on what you said about um, killing something to prove it's real. Uh, but for Sasquatches, if, you know, uh, if that eventually comes to a head and Bigfoots are proven to be real, no matter how it is proven to be real, they're going to they're gonna go kill them. They're going to go kill several of them to study them. There's just really no other way around it because that's the way how science works. Um, but to get to that spot, to even get the academics out there trying to hunt these things, um, do you think there's any other way to prove a species and to collect a holotype for a new novel species never been seen before. Cause I can see how photographs would work for something that we knew was real 60 years ago. And, you know, but for a new novel, unexpected species like the Sasquatch, um, do you think there's any other way to get that job done without actually putting a bullet in one? Man, you know, I'd love to sit here and be like, absolutely save it. You know, it's the only way, but the truth is the way that our, our system is set up, there is not. You know, there really isn't. Now, if you if you turned up with a foot of one or something like that, sure. Right. Or a leg or an arm, you know, that someone hit on a car and that's what's left. Sure. But ahead of having that specimen. No, the answer is no. You know, the way I would handle it if I were targeting these things is I wouldn't be out there with a gun. I would study their ecology to the best of my ability, and then I would create live traps, right? And, you know, in order to do that, you use use primitive survival guys, you use uh, engineers, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, I've done. I've built these giant crocodile traps and caught big crocs and stuff like that. And a croc certainly doesn't have the intelligence of a, of a bipedal primate. But, um, you know, the, I think the only way short of killing one is to catch one alive. And, the only, and that's probably an even harder task than shooting one. Yeah, that's a bit problematic. And I guess that's why Krantz and Green and all the early researchers always advocated for uh, killing one because it's quick and clean and done and it's over. And uh, that's the end of the day, you know. 
and, and here's my two cents on something like that, right? A relatively unpopular opinion of, of, of probably among my type of followers. But if you're going to ask me, hey, will you go kill an orca to save all the orcas, right? We love orcas. Killer whales are beautiful. Nobody wants to see an orca killed, myself included. But if you told me that if I was the person that had to kill an orca to save all the orcas, I would do it. I would hate it. It would be miserable. It would be one of the hardest things I'd ever have to do. But for the greater good of the species, I would absolutely do it. And I feel that way about any species. Now, if there's two of them left and you take that approach, well, obviously there's a big problem. But, um, you know, if uh, and I don't know what, you know, your guys estimated populations are and everything else. But the point is, if if one kill can save a species, it's it's a worthwhile kill for the greater good. We figure there's three to ten thousand, three to ten thousand in North America is kind of the guesstimate. And if that's the truth, and again, I don't know what systems are in place, but if if there were 3,000 of them and you killed one of them, but killing one of them released funding and conservation and habitat preservation and everything else, and that brought the population, let's say they are in jeopardy from 3,000 to, to that 10,000, then that kill is worth it every time, right? And again, this is a terribly unpopular opinion. I'm, I'm nervous even speaking about it, but it's how I feel. It's also reality, you know. I mean, the reality is a question that, um, being a biologist like yourself, who's dealing with rare and largely maybe not well documented species, you know, or thought to be extinct, you have that's a question that's on your desk, and you have to deal with it. And I think it's a fair, uh, a fair position to have, no matter what various followers might say. I mean, it, this is something that you have to wrestle with personally. So I think it's a and it doesn't matter how much you love them, you know. That if you want to save them, you got to do you got to do what it takes. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks for having me today. I enjoyed chatting with you. Sorry that I uh, expelled so much verbal diarrhea about science, but it's what I get excited about. No, it's what we need to do. We need to up the game of the Bigfoot community instead of chasing around voices in our heads and thinking things are going on that aren't. Uh, we, <laughs> sure. need, we need to start playing by the rules so we can be taken seriously and then sure. move, this, move this subject forward out of the realm of ridiculous tinfoil hat wearing weirdos on, on you know cable news into uh, <laughs> something that we can talk about relic relic species of hominins possibly existing in north america sure makes sense to me thank you so much for coming on loved it thanks yeah, guys appreciate it take okay, care have a good one bye-bye yeah force was a great guest you know i, I know they tried to be really with the pure science approach but man i wanted to kind of school him more on the sasquatch you know like this is why they're real and get him you know more enthused on it more interested well, it sounds like his plate is full enough. And, you know, and nobody likes to be convinced of anything, whether it's Bigfoot or politics or any. Nobody likes to have somebody else tell them why they're wrong. So it's, I, I, I think it's better to take a softer hand, you know? He, he was open to it, though. I mean, he just he just really has not been exposed to the information, the evidence. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping to have him chase, go down the Gareth Patterson hole, you know, because uh, I think that he would he, he's aware of him as an author. I think it would probably say a lot that uh, he has seen them with his own eyes. Right, right. No, but I love that. I, I, I love the science because if Bigfoots are real, there's science behind it, no matter what people think it is. Just because I'm, you know, the paranormal side, it's the onus is on them. You know, we know that Sasquatches are out there. Uh, well, at least well, I know the Sasquatches, but we know that the available evidence points to uh, some sort of hominin or at least hominoid, some sort of ape-like, man-like thing. That Their, their structure is uh, exactly the same as all the other uh, species or more or less the same as all the other species in that group, the hominoid group. Um, their, their fur is similar. Their foot structure is identical. The hands are strongly resembling. Uh, so what, 
the, the paranormal people, the onus is on them to show us that they're right, because so far the evidence is strongly tilted towards a perfectly normal biological species. Um, so I love having biologists on and talking about what they are looking into and how they're looking into their subjects and maybe taking something away that we can apply to the Sasquatch. Well, I think the guys like him aren't aware that there's been a lot of people that have applied scientific, you know, principles and protocols that, you know, that have got that have gotten some stuff, you know, like you know, North, North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Lots of people have, in fact, applied scientific method towards this, but they haven't gotten very far. So no. I think he would just throw that back, just like he did the orangutan or the orang pendek thing. It's like, well, why is it then? It's like, well, I, I give him the reasons I think that orang pendex have not been proven real, but I don't know at the end of the day. And certainly a, it's a conundrum for the Sasquatch. Well, that was a great interview with Forrest. And we got another good one coming up next week. So until that time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond. That's an N in the middle. And tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 